Welcome to the Weekend University Podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organized lecture days, where attendees get a full day of talks from leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. If you'd be interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures and discounts on our live events, you can sign up for the early access list at theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. This week we have a lecture on science and spirituality from Dr. Oliver Robinson. Oliver is a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Greenwich and the course coordinator for adult development and mental health. His research focuses on how identity, well-being and mental health are affected by major life transitions, crises and aging processes during adulthood. Dr. Robinson's work has gained attention from The New Scientist, The Guardian, BBC Radio 4, The Telegraph and The Times. You can keep up to date with Oliver's work on his website, www.oliverrobinson.info. Enjoy the show. It's true that by, by day I am a psychologist. Uh, I'm also a father of a, a, a three-year-old girl who keeps me very occupied. And uh, live in southeast London. Um, by night, uh, I am a, a rather unconventional interdisciplinary thinker and spiritual explorer. Uh, and that takes me into all sorts of interesting places, spaces, practices, and ideas. And I've been uh, writing on issues pertaining to science and spirituality now for 10 years as a kind of parallel path to my main job as an adult development psychologist. So, uh, and I've been trying to knit these two halves of my personality together over the past year a bit better. And this book is one step in, in that direction. Um, and uh, so what uh, the book covers uh, uh, history, philosophy, spirituality, mysticism, psychology, natural sciences, quantum physics, and all sorts. So it is radically interdisciplinary, uh, but it's, uh, it, it kind of represents an aspiration that I have for education, which is that we should be, uh, uh, while we need specialists, we also need generalists as well, and people who can consider big questions from lots of different perspectives. Um, and today is going to be... Well, it's going to be this, what I'll be covering today. Uh, I'm firstly going to refer to what I mean by spirituality as distinct from but overlapping with religion. A bit of history, science and spirituality is two central strands of the modern era, both enormously influential in shaping our culture that we live in today. And then I'll briefly refer to the seven paths or dialectics that in the book I, I use to define the science and spirituality relationship. Um, but, and we're going to be focusing specifically on the three in the box. So I'm, I'm going to give you a taster of the seven by digging down into three. And then a brief integra integration and then hopefully we'll have a bit of a discussion at the end. And there will be some music too. Uh, and I did check before we started that the audio is, is working very well, so we will have a, a musical interlude, and I'll explain how that fits with the, with the narrative when it comes round. Um, I believe you now mentioned this to you earlier on, but the, uh, the, the, um, the nature of, of the talk with it being recorded is that questions are reserved for the end, so if you have questions, scroll them down, store them up, and ask me uh, when it's question time. Now, 
I'm going to start off with an orientation to make sure that you know what I'm referring to when I refer to spirituality. And when I do refer to spirituality in this way, I hope that what I'm doing is representing what I believe to be the general cultural representation of the term as good as I can, and how it relates to religion um, as uh, uh, kind of two overlapping circles. Now, what I can say about both religion and spirituality is that both cover much the same topics and practices. The divine, transcendental phenomena, the mystical experience, meditation, prayer, ethical development, divination, inner peace, yoga, ultimate purpose, vocation, the sublime, peak experience, ecstasy, and so on. You'll find all of them covered by both religion and spirituality, and it's the nature of the institutions, or lack thereof, that, uh, that, 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 that makes them <clears throat> different in how they cover these topics. So, and I'm just going to, a few key points uh, of contrast I'm going to cover here. So firstly, uh, religion, ever since its inception, and it hasn't been around forever, requires uh, group membership. It is a membership-based system. And by joining a religious group, that then shapes your social identity to a large degree. You, uh, well, most members of a religious establishment or religious group will say, I am a, and finish that sentence with an adjective that defines their religious identity. I am a Buddhist, I am a Christian, and that becomes central to the sense of self in that you place yourself within this very specific defined group who have shared tenets. There are joining rituals for entering a religion, and to move between them, there are typically conversion rituals or a recognized conversion process too. Whereas in spirituality, there is no required group membership. It's an open domain of inquiry, much like many other open domains of inquiry that have evolved over the modern era as part of the proliferation of inquiry into lots of new areas and lots of areas that traditionally were subsumed within uh, religion and within perhaps natural philosophy. There are groups within spirituality, but there's no required group membership. It's not inherent to spirituality, that you have to be part of a group to be recognised as participating in it. Religion has core beliefs integral to group membership. There is, uh, within each group, a certain amount of acceptance or tolerance of divergence from those core beliefs in terms of the capacity to add to those or, or interpret them, with some groups being uh, famously intolerant of interpretation or of uh, an, an idiosyncratic variation of those core beliefs while some have a, a, very, a very high degree of tolerance of, of individuality and interpretation and addition and variation. But those core beliefs are there nonetheless. Whereas in spirituality, beliefs tend to be eclectic, pluralist and integrative. Each person seeks their own integration based on experience and reflection. Now with that comes a greater level of individualism uh, rather than the sense of, uh, of uh, solidarity and community and com and, and, uh, and, and the binding together of individuals within a common frame. But what it does provide for is uh, a, a certain level of responsibility and agency in, in the individual who is looking into the area of spirituality to find their own integration and to see if they can bind it together into a level of wholeness which fits with what, what else they believe in life, what else they do with their life, and how they see themselves. Religion, as I define it here has been around since the Axial Age as it's been referred to roughly 500 BC. I say possibly as early as 3000 BC because 
Religions that we recognize now as religions that predate the Axial Age, such as Hinduism, uh, it's arguable that prior to their recognition by Westerners as a religion weren't really because they weren't recognized by their practitioners as a religion because they were so inherently embedded into the culture that they weren't distinct from the culture in any way. They weren't a recognizable domain of activity that could be transferred to other cultures and you could convert people into. So really it was around 500 BC with the advent of Buddhism and Judaism and Zoroastrianism in Persia that you started to see uh, uh, religious groups that were recognized as groups that could be transferred to new individuals. You could convert people in. It was kind of a package that you could take to other places and spaces and say, this is what I'm doing. Do you want to be part of my group? Spirituality, as I define it here, has been around since the 19th century with precursors from the 16th century. I should say, actually, there are precursors going all the way back into prehistory, right into the indigenous traditions that predate religious groupings, such as uh, what we now refer to as shamanic traditions. But what they didn't have, which modern spirituality has, is the huge availability of Western, Eastern traditions and more, uh, pre-religious shamanic traditions as well that have fed into modern spirituality. So what we've had since the 19th century is knowledge of the world's spiritual traditions and indeed uh, ideas and concepts that have never, haven't come from any traditions at all. So individuals have been able to group these together in their own way and come up with their own versions in a way which simply wasn't possible before then. And I'll come back to what made that in integration more possible in the 19th century later on. But precursors from the 16th century, again, I'll come back to those on the next slide, but that relates to some of the uh, non-conformist sects and mystical movements that arrived in the 1600s and the 1700s that again started to point away from religious uh, groupings and religion as an establishment and more towards this idiosyncratic, individualized, open inquiry. So I thought we'd kind of test the water here before we carry on. So hopefully enough of you in the room have Wi-Fi for this to work. Oh, I should say before we go on to the next slide that there is, of course, an area of overlap. Positive areas of overlap are where religious groups actively encourage spiritual exploration beyond their borders. So they'll say to their members, yes, you know, you are, or we are, the, uh, uh, together, uh, we, we hold beliefs in common, but feel free to explore uh, and expand your horizons beyond what we can provide. So there are religions that positively encourage that kind of eclectic seeking now. Less healthy areas of overlap include cults, which are typically modern spiritual movements, uh, that have then co-opted religious uh, 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 hierarchies, power uh, bases, boundaries, and, uh, and deference to authority, and, and often create very unhealthy structures indeed. I'm not talking about cults today. They are, in many ways, the antithesis of what I refer to by spirituality, which is an open, non-authoritarian, uh, non-dogmatic space. So yes, I think, it's, if I tap again, it'll go to the next slide. Um, so excuse me while I ping out of my PowerPoint quickly. If you can uh, go to Mentimeter, uh, uh, and to do that, you go to www.menti.com. Uh, and when you go to www.menti.com, uh, you'll see it'll ask you for a code, and you simply insert 507577. And I'm going to ask you two questions. Uh, the first one you see on the board is, do you consider yourself to be a religious person? And the second question is, do you consider yourself to be a spiritual person? And we'll see what the frequencies are in the room uh, and, uh, and what we can conclude from that.
All right, so I'm going to give it another 20 seconds or so and then go to the next question. That's a really good number of you responding, so I'm glad most of you do have access to Wi-Fi. That's excellent. All right, they're still coming in, so I'll give it a few more seconds. <laughs> I th the, 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 uh, the frequency is, uh, of the two answers is pretty clear-cut, I think, so we can... All right, I'm going to move on to the next one. Uh, I can always come back. Oh, still coming in. <laughs> oh, we're, we, we've hit three figures now, so I'm going to move on. Next one. Do you consider yourself to be a spiritual person? So we'll see how, how, it, how it lands for this one. Of course, uh, there will be individuals in the room who answer yes to both. These are not mutually exclusive terms. It's very possible to be both. Um, but what we have is actually is, is almost a perfect mirror image graph, don't we? Almost. Look at that. Uh, that was the first one. And you can, you can answer that one now if you didn't already. Back up on the board. So, in part, what that says is a little bit about the, um, the perhaps the demographic of the weekend university and its uh, and the people who are interested in coming to sessions, but and perhaps what a day that's billed as a day on science and spirituality tends to attract. But what it also uh, uh, reflects is the fact that the word spirituality um, has become a term that is palatable to many people for whom the term religion is not so palatable. So what you will find here is that the 92 people who've responded yes here, who, uh, most of whom responded no to this question, uh, will find that there's something about that term and the openness of the inquiry and the lack of requirement for deference to authority uh, and indeed the capacity for, for individual integration that, that, that is more appealing than, uh, than uh, uh, the, the, the more structured frameworks of religion. And it's important to remember that the word hierarchy literally means spiritual rank. It comes from uh, uh, religion. So, uh, so when we talk about hierarchy, uh, we very much refer to something that came in with religion. Well, that's uh, really interesting. So now I'm going to tell you a little bit now about why I see science and spirituality as complementary from a historical perspective, because they both arrived, or I, I see them as having both arrived around the, 17th, uh, the 1700s. I'll tell you uh, a bit on the next slide about that. Uh, out of the wellspring of modernity and modern values, which arrived at about that time. And I'll tell you a little bit about how I define that. And when I say I define it, I, I am very much drawing here on a particular historian and many historians like him who, uh, who refer to modernity. So the idea of modernity, there are some central tenets, some core propositions, one of which is progress, the belief that the future can be better than the past, will be better than the past, given sufficient human endeavour, and that innovation, often on the individual level, or at least small groups, is the key to that. Now that is so integral to our worldview now that we, can't, we find it hard to imagine what it was like to exist in a pre-modern world where an equally strongly held belief was that the future was getting progressively worse and that the, the present day was already in a deteriorated and degenerate state relative to the past. And that if you wanted to know truth, you, you wouldn't try and look to the future or to innovation. You'd look to the past 
where you could find human beings that were far superior to the degenerate human beings that are alive now, such as Abraham and Moses, and of course Plato and Aristotle. And you could debate on these super beings, these, uh, these people who, who were far superior to, 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 to humans now, uh, and consider which one was, uh, uh, was preferable to, to follow, but you couldn't improve on them. And the idea of the future is potentially better than the past was preposterous to them. Now, of course, there were renegade thinkers from early on who were trying to innovate and push forward, but they were on the fringes of society. You know, the Leonardo da Vinci's who were pushing the boundaries in the 1500s and early 1600s, they were not the mainstream. So linked to this idea of progress is the idea of the essential importance of questioning. So if you believe that the past is inherently superior to the present, who do you trust to get truth? You, get, you go to the people who represent the tradition that links you to that golden age in the past where there was perfection and, and, a, and, a, and a clearer state of truth and knowledge. So you defer to your authorities who link you to the past because they are carrying through the tradition which you don't change because you have to maintain continuity with that, with that uh, all-important perfect past. But the idea of questioning is no. You question tradition, you question authority, you ask questions, you're sceptical, you, uh, you don't take anyone's word for it, and we'll come back to that again later on. And then individualism, the belief that individuals can have and should have the freedom to experiment and try new things, again, integral to our world now, integral to our very idea of liberty, our, our, our values and what we hold to be important. Uh, but again, uh, this grew in importance out of uh, a culture where individual eccentricity, individual, uh, individuals pushing the envelope and suggesting that the, 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 uh, the communal, communally held worldview might not be right was, was, was extremely risky. And it is considerable hubris to assume that one person can come up with a better idea or a better ethical system than the, the collective products of humanity. You know, all millions of people who've lived thus far and its, kind of, and, and its package in culture to say that one person can do better is the modern view but it is hubris, and many didn't believe it for a long time. And if you want a really good book on that, that kind of captures that discourse about how we gradually moved from a position where we were adulating the past to a position where we were far more encouraged about the future, read Ancients and Moderns by Richard Foster Jones. Um, and it was out of this ethos that what we now refer to as science and spirituality emerged, like two powerful strands of culture intertwining around each other uh, shaping the world which we live in now. Uh, we're, we're all more aware that science has done this than, 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 than spirituality because spirituality is uh, often difficult to formulate, difficult to verbalize, and often comes in quite uh, dis uh, discreet, or I should say um, uh, unmarked packages, and we'll come back to that later on. But so it's pretty clear where science has had its imprint through technology and other. So yeah, so they both emerge out of this. And here's my little potted... Ollie's 10-minute introduction to the last 400 years. Um, I'm going to talk you through the spiritual and scientific strands as they went through a series of parallel revolutions that had the same essential source and that, that kind of exploded in two directions at once. So firstly was the scientific revolution, which... Oh, there's, there's my, there are the dates. First was the scientific revolution that you, we can pin down to about... Well, 1660 to 1680, roughly. Um, and between those years, the, uh, the Royal Society emerged as the British uh, Society promoting science. So did the Académie de Sciences in France, almost exactly the same year. 
there were in, in, enormous scientific uh, uh, strides made uh, forward in that time, particularly Newton's work. Uh, his Principia was uh, published at that time. Uh, but uh, one of the most influential pieces of science to reach the public's attention was uh, Robert Hooke's book, Micrographia, which was based on the work of his work with microscopes, looking into things and looking at their minuscule structure. And this absolutely captured the public's imagination um, uh, as something that was, it was the first ever publication of the Royal Society. And people were, were like, gosh, this is a revelation for the modern age. Look what's inside a cork. Look what a flea, previously a, just a tiny speck to all human beings. That's all we knew of them jumping specks were suddenly seen as this sort of giant uh, monster with, uh, uh, with uh, antenna and uh, little jaws, and they, they, they lapped it up. So scientific revolution, uh, uh, huge strides forward in physics, uh, zoology, and in um, the cultural recognition of science, thanks to these important groups like the Royal Society. And the Royal Society's motto was and is nullius in verba, which means take nobody's word for it which absolutely captures the rebellious spirit of that time and still captures the rebellious spirit of science, which is don't take anyone's word for it, don't trust uh, received tradition and hierarchy, think for yourself. Uh, and so it was the age of rebellion is what I call this. But uh, I really want to emphasize that exactly at the same time as science was going through this rebellious upheaval, so was religion uh, in Europe and, uh, and in America when it, when it spilled over on, uh, across the Atlantic. And it was called the Nonconformist Revolution. Um, and what happened was that at almost exactly the same time as the Royal Society was set up, uh, there was a, a particular charter, and I'm going to just get the name of it from my notes. Um, the Act of Uniformity, 1662, which labelled all dissenting religious sects as non-conformist. Anyone who didn't use the Book of Common Prayer and adhere to kind of the, this was in the UK, adhere to the Church, Church of England approach, became these kind of renegade religious societies that were tenuously religious. And they had some lovely names like Seekers and Shakers and Ranters and Muggletonians. And all of them were, uh, were trying to experiment with radical, rebellious new ways of doing religion that were much less based on hierarchy and authority and tradition and much more based on I, uh, uh, the discussion of ideas, opening up to experience on meditative states of consciousness and so on. And the, the most enduring of those early non-conformist sects was the Quakers. And you can see a little woodcut from the time saying 12 Quakers quite still. Uh, and for those of you who know about the Quakers, you'll know that the, Quak the Quakers don't have priests. Uh, they don't really have a theology either. It's a radically open domain of inquiry that eschews the idea of hierarchy and of deference to authority and is radically uh, egalitarian, radically open and an extraordinary organisation. I think it, it was, I, I've never encountered any others like it in the world as one which really tries to uh, uh, exist without any hierarchy at all. So, uh, so, so, both of those had really powerful effects on society. The scientific revolution was opening people's eyes up to the world as it was, and the nonconformist revolution, allied to important mystical movements on the continent at the time, like the Quietists and a guy called Jack Jacob Bohm, who was coming up with all sorts of interesting ideas throwing open the idea of religion and saying, let's just, you know, just like they're saying in royal society, let, let's take nobody's word for it and try again, see what we can come up with. Uh, then about a century later, mid-1700s, chemistry caught up in science with the chemical revolution. And the chemical revolution was when, uh, still almost 100 years after the scientific revolution, people still thought matter was composed of the four elements of fire, water, earth, etc. 
They, they tried to add a fifth one, which was phlogiston, that didn't work. So Antoine Lavoisier, with his wife, uh, Marie, created a, a, what the basis of the periodic table that we know now. They found out about oxygen, loads of other elements that now sit within our periodic table. He literally said, right, let's scrap the entire system of alchemy and, uh, and, and chemistry that we've received and start again. Uh, an extraordinary step forward, which led to all kinds of innovations like hot air balloons. It came along with uh, important technological innovations that allowed that to happen. Super accurate measurements, reliable heat sources, methods of titration, and so on. Uh, and uh, also important to mention that one of the key players in that, alongside Lavoisier, was Joseph Priestley, who was a Unitarian uh, minister. And at the same time as that, as, as, as the chemical revolution was creating this excitement in science, because chemis chemical experiments and chemistry experiments are just incredibly exciting to watch. You can do them as public displays, which is what they did in those days. And at the same time, the Romantic Revolution kind of created a new excitement in spirituality. Uh, I, it's impossible to overestimate the importance of Romanticism on contemporary spirituality, but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about what it is. Uh, romanticism was a, was a cultural movement that contained artists, poets, philosophers, painters, uh, who all decided that they were going to pursue art and poetry and inner inspiration, feeling, as the source of the sacred. Uh, and uh, we can see here Keats saying, I'm certain of nothing but the holiness of the heart's affections and the truth of the imagination. And for the romantics, if you wanted to encounter the divine, you wanted to get in touch with your creativity because to be creative is about as close as you can be to what they meant by the divine. Feelings and dreams were seen as important sources of inspirations. Uh, often, and despite the fact that the romantic art and music had no religious references, and that was really important for them, is that typically they're about nature or emotion or feeling, uh, they could still produce a very powerful spiritual experience. Um, the composer Liszt, who was one of the big romantic composers, said that art is our, is our ladder to the infinite. He said it was uh, the way that we, we, we connect with the spiritual. Key figures like Coleridge and Keats and Beethoven and Blake, William Blake, who was recognised as an important romantic poet and artist who, importantly, grew up in a non-conformist household there was a connection between these two. The rebellion of the nonconformist phase was stirring the rebellion of Romanticism. Then if we move forward, there are another uh, a series of parallel revolutions just before 1900 and then spilling over into up to around, around about 1920. In science, you had the relativity revolution followed by the quantum revolution, all of which threw science up in the air and gave it new uncertainty. Um, famously, of course, there was the uncertainty principle in quantum physics, but Relativity created all kinds of uncertainties. Gone were loads of absolutes, like the idea of living in an absolute space-time matrix, which we walk around in. That really didn't exist from, from Einstein onwards. You know, space and time and were morphing in, in relation to the observer and the speed they were moving at, and it was all extraordinarily paradoxical. The idea of light being a wave and a particle, that's, uh, according to standard rationality, impossible, because they are very different things have very different effects. But we're expected uh, from that point onwards to understand that weight, light, light is both, and we just have to embrace the paradox. So this was really uh, uh, throwing science into new territories, but it fed off and ran in parallel with the mysticism revolution. Most of the uh, pioneering quantum physicists were drawing on Eastern mysticism to inspire their ideas. Some of them so much so that they became really quite vocal proponents of, 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 of Eastern uh, philosophy and Eastern mysticism. So, for example, Schrodinger, one of the quantum phys 
uh, uh, great quantum physicist, became quite a, a, a vocal advocate of Vedanta and wrote quite a lot about it. So what was the mysticism, rev mysticism revolution? Well, it was a couple of things. Number one, it was the huge rise in awareness of the Eastern spiritual traditions, which previously people didn't know much about. Buddhist uh, 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 literature was translated into uh, European languages for the first time in the mid-19th uh, mid, mid century. Excuse me, mid-1800s. 18, 18, uh, 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 Schopenhauer, a philosopher who did a lot to publicise Buddhism in the West. There was the world's parliament of religions, or was it the parliament of the world's religions? One of the two, in 1893, uh, which was a really important event. It was the first time representative of the faiths of all the different religions in the world had come together and discussed their ideas and their practices. And what came out of that was the idea that perhaps it's not theology that binds religions together. It's not words, but it's mysticism. It's the experience of the infinite, the experience of love of connection and oneness that people feel in states of spiritual consciousness. So that was really powerful. It really fed the mysticism revolution, which was about connecting this golden thread across religions. Also, a really important movement was called New Thought, which was broadly a popular mysticism revolution. That chap there called Ralph Waldo Treen, he wrote this book, In Tune with the Infinite. There's no religious references in there at all, but it's deeply spiritual and it sold millions of copies in the late 19th century, attesting to the, to the appetite for this new kind of popular mysticism that was spreading at the time. Um, so arguably the word mysticism didn't really exist until then. There was a mystic, uh, which was recognized as a particular kind of way of doing religion, but mysticism is something that extends beyond religion around about then. And so quantum revolution and mysticism revolution, both inserting paradox and uncertainty into uh, culture. Because one of the essence, the core, core principles of, of, of mystical religion is that you can't frame religious truths in neat verbal propositions. It's more complex than that. Right, so the last pair of revolutions that I'm just going to mention is uh, what I call the dark revolution. <clears throat> in the book I, I refer to it, I think is that, but uh, e either way, it's, it, what it's premised on is radical changes in, in how we understand cosmology in the last 30 or 40 years. Do, do be aware that the Big Bang is, is a relatively recent idea and still evolving as an idea. And since then we've discovered dark energy and dark matter which suggests that the, it's the majority of the physical universe we don't have access to with our current means of measurement. Uh, we can't measure dark energy and we can't measure dark matter yet, uh, although we can attest to their existence by their effects. Uh, what the, the effect of dark energy is that the, 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 the expansion of the universe is still speeding up, and we have to account for that some way, and dark energy is the way they currently account for it. But science has been punctured again in terms of its, uh, the idea of a complete system of understanding the world because there's so much that they, they explicitly recognise that they don't currently understand. And that happened alongside the spirituality revolution, which was a kind of expansion of its own kind, really since the 1960s and 70s, uh, the ideas that we now refer to as spirituality just going mainstream, going big time. Uh, an excellent book by David Tacey called The Spirituality Revolution charts this rise over the last 40, 50 years, and he says it is a, a, a literal flood of ideas, practices, um, of uh, groups and workshops, exploring ideas, fully deinstitutionalized religion gone mainstream. Some people find it terrifying, some people find it wonderful, uh, but it is a, now a major feature of our culture, such that practices that were previously considered to be quite peripheral are now mainstream, like yoga meditation, and many ideas that are widely held would have been considered as religious are now held by people who aren't 
self-defining as religious, but they hold the, the views nonetheless and explore them openly anyway. And there's been a huge amount of interaction between science and spirituality in the last 20, 30 years, arguably more than ever before. Um, Organisations like the Scientific and Medical Network, Institute of Noetic Sciences, uh, pioneering that. I should, last thing I'm going to say before we move on is that at each of those eras, some of the big movers and shakers have straddled these two strands. Newton, being a great example, he was incredibly spiritual in a, in a very unusual and radical way. No one quite knew how to, to take it at the time because it was so unconventional. Um, someone who's worth mentioning in, in the, this, this, this time, the chemical, the romantic uh, revolution era, which is called the Age of Wonder, is uh, Humphrey Davy, who as well as being one of the most important scientists of his age, uh, was really into trying whatever psychedelic he could get his hands on. Mostly, mostly nitrous oxide, and then writing about the states of consciousness that he experienced and the spiritual implications. So, uh, yeah, Google Humphrey Davy, interesting chap. Uh, I've mentioned the, the individuals who straddled the quantum revolution, um, Schrodinger being a great example, uh, many others, Pauli, um, Planck. And uh, more recently, uh, it's hard to point to a particular individual because it's, there's so many. But put it this way, if you, try, if, you, if you were to search for the word spirituality in scientific journals prior to 1990, you'd find pretty much nothing. If you were to Google it, for, if, if you were to do a, a search using, say, Medline or scientific search database from 1990 onwards, you'd find thousands of mentions. Suddenly they're kind of blurring together, mixing up, trying to make sense of each other more than ever. There's a sense that this idea of having two strands has run its course and we need to intertwine them more. All right, so that's, uh, that's the historical bit. I will be dipping back into history, but just within the structure of the, of the seven paths of the book now. Um, quick uh, word about the idea of harmony and the harmony of opposites. Because in the book I present the idea that if you embrace opposites in the right way, if the opposites are genuinely complementary, you have a chance at, at, at integration and wholeness that you don't have otherwise. Um, and the idea of opposites being harmonious, the first, idea that I, the first way that I came into contact with this idea was through art. Because uh, when I was younger, I was much more interested in being a painter uh, than an academic. And uh, I learned colour theory. And in colour theory, uh, you, you, you learn about opposites. Uh, and if you place colours around a wheel, the complementary colour to any colour is its opposite. So the complementary colour to blue is orange, or green is red, and vice versa. And if you want to create harmony in an artistic composition, you juxtapose complementary colours to create a sense of unity that, that, where the, the two colours come together in some sense of harmony and ordered wholeness. So this played in my mind, I think, ever since then, this idea that, that, that through embracing opposites you can find a higher order harmony. And it's an idea that runs through academia ever since the uh, pre-Socratic philosophers Heraclitus referred to palintonus, palintonus harmonia, I think, is, uh, the, which is, uh, he describes as the harmony of things stretched out and conflicting. So it's an old idea. And the, the pairs of opposites that I use in the book are as follows. Seven of them. Uh, 
I was thinking of calling, of calling the subtitle of the book The Seven Harmonies of Science and Spirituality, but then I thought it would sound a bit too Deepak Chopra, so I backed off. Um, and yeah, so the subtitle is just now the Exploring the Harmonies of Science and Spirituality. But seven is, is an auspicious number. It just so happened to be the one that worked for my scheme. And I'm going to describe what these refer to briefly. I, I should say from the outset that I put science on the left, spirituality on the right, but science extends across all of these polarities the, the whole way, and spirituality extends the whole way in the other direction. But there is a natural emphasis and affinity between science and the left terms and spirituality and the right-hand side, such that there's a very, very clear sense of emphasis, um, uh, and they have a kind of natural a home on either side. So we'll start off with science. Uh, no, we'll start off with the top one, uh, and I'm going to dig into three of these in, in considerable depth, so I'm just going to give you a very, very brief summary now. So science, uh, uh, outer, uh, and spirituality, inner. So we'll come back to this, but broadly, the outer uh, focus of science is an external view, the endeavour to explain reality beyond the body. And all that seems to extend beyond the body right up to the, the cosmic level. Uh, and the inner focus of spirituality being um, uh, inner in the sense of a first-person perspective. I'm conscious. How do I make sense of that? What can I find within my conscious if I still it and steady it? The impersonal versus personal. Impersonal is a detached observation of the world where you try and disconnect yourself from what you're looking at so you can describe it as it is with your own perspective removed. So the description can, will be the same no matter who says it because you, you've detached yourself from this object that you observe and you tend to observe it as an object rather than a subject and the personal connection in contrast is about trying to connect with another subjective being out there and create a sense of connection with a, with a, with a being, with a person, another subjective field uh, and we'll come back to that and why that's so important for spirituality later. Verbal, uh, all science must be encoded in language and mathematics, there's no way around that. Uh, and we'll come back to that later on. And spirituality explores uh, measurement, uh, uh, how you can get beyond measurement in words into domains that extend beyond language and the propositional statements that it contains. Thinking, science is based on the absolute importance of rational and critical thought and some very specific thought processes like hypothesis formulation and analysis. Uh, whereas spirituality explores deep feeling as a special form of knowing, intuitions, and what can be, can be communicated to the mind in, in forms of feeling that can't seem to be communicated in forms of discursive linguistic thought. But do remember that each of these contains both, but with an emphasis on one side. Science mechanism. So the, the, the mechanism word is how, uh, a purpose word is why. So science tends to look at how things work. It does answer why questions, but often by means to mechanism. Um, whereas uh, spirituality tends to look at the uh, ultimate whys, a focus on life's meaning, ends rather than means. Science looks on an explanation, which is how you make sense of a thing by looking beyond the thing. In the thing's past, in a principle or governing rule that may control the thing. But when you're explaining, you're not really focusing on the thing because you're looking elsewhere to work out how that thing ended up here. So your attention is moving away from an object when you're trying to explain it. So if you're sit sitting with someone and trying to explain them, your attention's not fully with them because it's in some kind of explanation of why is this person doing this? Is it because of his past? 
Is it because of some governing rule? Is it because of his brain and so on? Now, contemplation is its dialectical opposite because contemplation means at placing attention absolutely and fully on the thing, not trying to explain it and attending to it in its, in its presence and trying to garner knowledge or understanding or awareness in that way. You become fully absorbed in the phenomenon. And finally, empirical and transcendental. Empirical being uh, evidence particularly gained through vision uh, and the senses, and transcendental being the unseen, that which can't be grasped through the five senses. Again, uh, science absolutely opens to the idea of the unseen. Uh, it's integral to science now because there's so much that we know we can't see. So we need different scientific instruments to get there. But this is idea of the idea uh, of the unseeable, that which doesn't sit within the empirical realm. So as in the realm of, uh, of, of that which external implements or, or, or externally focused senses can grasp. Is there somewhere else entirely? Uh, is, uh, is a part of spirituality. But I should say that it's very possible to be spiritual without any focus on the transcend transcendental at all. Uh, and indeed, for many, spirituality doesn't have a transcendental quality. And you can dip into both science and spirituality without necessarily embracing all seven of these values and how they tend to sit in these two complementary domains of inquiry. Uh, and what, with, in, with regards to what sits in the middle, the area of overlap between the two, I'll come back to at the end. So how are we doing for time? We're doing great for time. So we're going to dig into three. Bury down, I'm going to create a little collage for each one which tries to exemplify what, uh, what it means to pursue the whole path, both sides of the dialectic represented and embraced. And why it is that it's such a good idea for science to sit on the left and for spirituality to sit on the right. And why you don't necessarily want to dilute each one by hybridizing them too much, even though interaction is good. So yes, this is kind of meant as a, as a taster to, to the seven. If, 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 if the three go down well, you can dig into the, f the remaining four by, by buying the book. And I should say that apparently all the copies of the, all the, copies of the book here have already sold. Uh, so if you do want a copy, um, then, uh, and you haven't already got one here, come and chat to me. I mean, obviously Amazon's the first point of contact, but if you're, if you're averse to Amazon, you can chat with me. Anyway, moving on. So the first of the uh, dialectics that we're going to have a little dig into is outer and inner. Um, I think I'm going to dim, just dim the light slightly for this, if that's all right, video guy. Just, um, yep, just for a bit. Just we've got rather a lot of images on the screen. Um, right, so outer and inner. Science's focus on the outer world has always served it very well, because it's much easier to come up with uh, propositions and theories, frameworks of understanding about the outer world that everybody agrees on than it is uh, to do so about the inner world or about phenomena that appear more privately, like dreams and fantasies. Because it's, it, you can point to things in the outer world, and, uh, and, and that's a very strong form of evidence. And Galileo uh, is a, a, a powerful symbol for the advance of science. People talk about him as someone who was integral to the rise of science, which is absolutely true. His, his relationship to religion was quite paradoxical, actually, in a way, because he was devout. He actually thought of becoming a monk at one point, but again, wasn't much into the whole the, the way that the Catholic Church tended to dictate what you could and couldn't believe. So he built a telescope, and, uh, and through that, 
found out things about the outer world that no one had previously known. Jupiter had moons, that our moon has craters and all kinds of things. So this, so, and he was looking absolutely at the outer world, but then doing something very clever, which is that the data that he got from the outer world, he would only theorize about its mathematical qualities and all the rest he would ignore because he was only sure that it was the mathematical qualities that were definitely outer. He wasn't sure if the rest had been imputed by him when he interpreted it, because he wasn't sure if the colors that he saw were really out there. So he said, the one thing I'm sure that's out there is, is, is the mathematical bits that I can see. That's philosophically questionable, but it served him well. Um, also integral to science's advance and representing its extrovert nature, its desire to conquer and understand and reach out into the world is its relationship to exploration. Scientific exploration, explorations have been integral to its advance. Uh, this is Darwin on the Beagle and his pictures of giant tortoises from the Galapagos that he brought back. And Darwin's explorations were integral to his theorizing, uh, just as uh, Wallace's were um, in Malaysia uh, when he came back and uh, uh, was working in the same area as Darwin. And they, and they both represented the way that exploration and the fascination with desire to understand the outer world then came back into our, an advance in our understanding of the animal kingdom and of the world of life. This is HMS Challenger, another famous scientific expedition plotting the oceans, giving us a better understanding of the world that we live in, the depth of the oceans, what the oceans are comprised of. Each one of these became symbolic of science's uh, uh, a courageous desire to go out into the world and find a world that was far more investigable, investigable far more open to investigation, far more uh, comprehensible, and far more extraordinary than anyone had previously thought. Um, the first hot air balloons that were powered by an, a, a nascent understanding of chemistry represented a, a, a new quest upwards, exploration upwards, which was a powerful symbolism of conquest, the conquest of the heavens, because previously, prior to any capacity to send observation up, everyone thought that above the sky was some celestial realm. Uh, but as people moved exploration upwards, it was found that wasn't the case, and the hot air balloons took that very first step. Voyager being um, the scientific explorer of our times, it's now gone beyond the solar system, creating uh, a little link between human, human scientific endeavor and deep, deep space, pushing out our capacity to move further and further out from our planet. And of course, there's Curiosity on Mars also representing that, still doing scientific experiments to this day. So in, to use Jungian terms, for me, science represents a kind of cultural extroversion over modernity. This fascination with the outer world, this desire to put your energies into understanding it and focus your uh, uh, attention, resource, um, and belief in what it, in what it brings back. But it, uh, for each individual human being, the outer world doesn't represent the whole of reality because we can't, oh, before I get onto the inner world, thank you for brain scan for reminding me, just a little bit about psychology. So psychology emerged late 19th century as a new kind of science which tried to make the inner phenomena of mind outer. It tried to do a clever trick, which was take pre pre phenomena that previously was felt not to be scientifically open to inquiry, such as thoughts, feelings, dreams, uh, private phenomena, uh, uh, which uh, a mental phenomena traditionally understood, and create a way of putting them into the outer world via a brain scan, via a questionnaire, via observation, 
via an uh, ex investigating facial expressions, which is what Charles Darwin did when he was done devising the theory of natural selection. He wrote a book about emotions and facial expressions. So he was in many ways one of the first psychologists. And it was a clever trick. It was basically bringing this previously romantic notion of mind into the domain of science by making it out, outer, external, and putting it in, and giving it a form of, of, of evidence, an evidence-based uh, knowledge that could be discussed in a form that was ex equivalent to natural science, but never the same. Psychology has, has always been felt uh, that people can t argue about its scientific status to this day, with some strongly arguing that it is a science and some strongly arguing that it isn't. Uh, and uh, that is in large part because it straddles the outer and inner dialectic and draws on phenomena that simply aren't as easily evidenced as the physical sciences. Um, and you've probably heard about the crisis of replication in psychology recently, where many experiments have been shown to not actually replicate in the same way that you would expect natural science experiments to do. And that, in large part, re represents the fact that it's a very nebulous territory when you're trying to pin down, say, an attitude in a, in a point on a questionnaire scale. It always re remains open to question. Have you genuinely measured the phenomenon or not? That's the, the science that I work in as a psychologist. So I kind of feel that I work in this boundary place that's always trying to be a science, but humming with these conundrums of free will and subjectivity and values. Uh, and it's a fascinating place to be. And I'm sure it's, uh, it's, it's forged my understanding of, of this. Now, the inner path of spirituality is first-person inquiry. It's everyone comes to to the world with a sense of being in a physical world, but also being a conscious being and having thoughts, feelings, and elements of their character and other elements, and of course, consciousness itself that, uh, that appear to be in some sense uh, 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 private, or at least more private than that which occurs beyond the body. And there is a, a long tradition of inquiring into the first person field of experience, not the way that psychology does, which is looking at other people, so as a psychologist, I study other people. I don't study myself, not, at least not in my day job anyway, because that's kind of what you do as a psychologist. You try and make everything out. And so with the rarest of exceptions, psychologists study other people. But the inner path of spirituality is when you look at yourself and you start to go into this sense of, of meanness to work out what's there. Uh, and mysticism is absolutely that. It's the inner path to religion. It's rather than religion as outer observances or spirituality is that, it's about the idea that if you do explore who you are, you'll find something that sits beyond the natural canons of science, something that is mysterious and very hard to articulate. The Quakers, being a, 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 an important Western mystical tradition, call it the inner light. So they say that in, in this, if you still the mind, if you, if you go inwards, you'll find at its core, it's luminous. There is something that wakes you up, that feels like a light, at least that's the best way we can describe it as a metaphor, uh, some, kind, some, some, some source of consciousness that sits beyond the capacity to observe it because it's always doing the observing. It's like a torch that you just can't shine on itself. Uh, meditation is arguably the defining practice of contemporary spirituality precisely because it gives you the capacity to explore or be uh, in certain first-person states of consciousness and uh, and go, go, go within, although not all forms of meditation are necessarily introvert. There are forms of meditation where you keep your eyes open and focus on what's out there. But always it's a, 
investigating consciousness from the first-person perspective, you're unlikely to come up with a set of neat scientific propositions, but you may understand it in a different way, on your own terms. You may understand yourself better. In healing also, absolutely. And we'll come, come, come to that in the next slide. Carl Jung said it was a process of awakening the inner path. So he said, uh, he, who, who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakens. And in other words, he felt that physical reality was a kind of dream. It was a, it's a conscious construction. If you want to understand that dream, you have to under, uh, understand its source. And the inner esoteric path is about awakening. And the term esoteric, you've probably heard it before, just means found within. Uh, another thing I want to mention briefly is the importance of the psychedelic revolution because uh, uh, pioneered by Aldous Huxley and you can see what well, you can't see but at the top of that book it says a genuine spiritual quest by the New York Times Aldous Huxley's account of taking mescaline and the way that it radically changed his perception of what it meant to be a conscious subject it, it was like a, a huge induction into the inner path for him he said it shook him out of the ruts of ordinary perception he was shown for a few timeless hours, I quote, the outer and inner world, not as they appear to an animal or, or uh, obsessed with survival or a human being obsessed with words and notions, but as they are apprehended directly and unconditionally by mind at large. The ordinary waking consciousness, he says, is very useful and on most occasions an indispensable state of mind, but it is by no means the only form of consciousness, nor in all circumstances the best. Insofar as he transcends his ordinary self and his ordinary mode of awareness, the mystic is able to enlarge his vision, to look more deeply into the unfathomable miracle of existence. And that he found hugely inspired by his work with psychedelics. And the fact is that this, that, that movement that was kind of in, lar in large part uh, uh, publicised by Aldous Huxley became absolutely integral to what we now consider to be contemporary spirituality for many. Absolutely. Uh, with everything I mentioned today, there'll be 10 things I, I don't, because they're scooting over huge territories. Um, and uh, and, and for, for Huxley, it was this awakening to the idea that consciousness is, uh, at least normal waking consciousness, is just one state or one layer of consciousness, and that you can move to different layers uh, and to radically more open states of consciousness, and that that is the inner path as much as the kind of calm and peaceful and joyful meditative state. It's this rather sublime, slight at times overwhelming journey into radical altered states of consciousness. So in terms of timing, I think what I'm going to do, because uh, it's almost two o'clock on the dot, is have a break now. Uh, and then reconvene to go on to our next path, which is impersonal, personal, after the break. We're going to do a little um, whistle-stop tour along, along two more of these paths or dialectics, uh, and then a little bit of integration and chat. So the impersonal, personal polarity as a, a way of framing science and spirituality, um, I, I was very inspired in terms of crafting the chapter based around this, by Martin Buber in his book, I and Thou. Because each of the seven polarities is discussed by different people. I haven't come across anyone that puts them all together uh, prior to my book, but there were lots of sources of inspiration, and, and Buber was one. It's a, a very short book, and in this book, Buber talks about how there are two essential ways of meeting 
the other, an entity beyond you. Uh, and that's either as an it or as a you. So as an object or as a subject. And the impersonal encounter is between a subject and an object. And the personal encounter is between a subject and another subject. And we'll come on to why these are so different as, an, as a form of encounter and how they can interplay. To refine the impersonal encounter is, in many ways, the, the objective of science. As it says here, you know, this was taken off a slide about scientific observation. To preserve the impersonal, objective, and scientific attitude during the period of observation and consultation is of all important. As, as, and this, you'll see this in, on many scientific documents, the importance about being impersonal. So what do they mean? Well, being impersonal means being detached. So, in other words, you and the thing that you're observing, you try and detach yourself off from it. So when you describe the object, you're sure you're describing it and not you or your imputations on it or anything that you've sort of thrown over it like a veil of your own thought and feelings and so on. It's dispassionate in the sense that you should try and keep your feelings out of it because they're likely to give you a personal, not an impersonal viewpoint. It's impartial in the sense that you should do it exactly the same with everyone and you should try not to be, any, be biased towards any particular object or subject because that might twist your perspective. It might twist your uh, your detachment, and it's replicable in the sense that what you then describe, if you've genuinely severed yourself from that object and described it as it is, should be describable in exactly the same way from anyone else looking at it from different directions or observing the phenomenon from elsewhere. So it becomes perfectly replicable. And part of the way that's done is through uh, the cognitive process of analysis. Uh, and analysis literally means to break apart. It comes from uh, its etymology is to, is to smash up, essentially. We dissect, we break apart, we look at something in terms of its outer manifestations, its parts, its mechanisms. This is brilliant. This is the strength of science. This is what gives science the capacity to describe and explain things in ways that are so replicable and so agreeable over time and space. Uh, the philosopher Thomas Nagel calls it a view, the view from nowhere. It should be a view that's from nowhere in particular and from nowhere at all. In other words, Whatever you describe in science should not be a subjective viewpoint you know, about how much you love a landscape. It should be a view that is shorn of any point of view. It's a view from nowhere. It's, uh, it's the, the notion of a world without a point of view to some degree. This is science's great strength. Uh, and to have refined this capacity for impersonal description and theorizing has, has, has powered it forward. It means that, you know, that, that, that we... As I say, we have extraordinary kind of global cross-cultural consensus on axioms of science because, precisely because of it. However, uh, science deals a lot uh, with animals and taking an impersonal attitude towards an animal uh, leads to certain consequences and arguably difficulties. So here's a, an extract from the scientific journal Lab Animal. And you'll see how it, it intentionally creates a depersonalized concept of the animal. When it comes to the guinea pigs, you now have a choice. You can opt for our standard model that comes complete with hair or try our new stripped-down, hairless model for speed and efficiency. So what you can see is being, do is being done there is creating a depersonalized, impersonal notion of the guinea pig. It's a model. It's uh, efficient or not, depending on your purposes. It's something that's there for you. It's an object for your purposes. It has no particular agenda itself. And if it does, you shouldn't really worry about it. It's your object 
for your use. That's the, that's the impersonal attitude. You know, the impersonal attitude is to remove the mystery of subjectivity and look at purely what's in front of you. And that means that, in some cases, animals uh, are treated uh, in ways that, in, in science, that are very impersonal. And there is a long, enduring, and continued legacy of extreme cruelty to animals in science. Now, that is in part justified, or at least it's justified by its proponents, by the fact that much of, say, you know, important medical research being done on animals has huge consequential benefit for humans and so on, but much scientific research that, is, that involves cruelty to animals is not by any means necessary. And animal liberation groups that continually expose experiments that are extremely cruel to animals uh, you know, see it being done on a sort of flippant basis, and the scientists seem to have become detached from the fact that they're causing these animals suffering. There was a very famous case of two dolphins who were liberated from a laboratory uh, because they were being kept in concrete enclosures about six foot by two foot and were obviously distressed and depressed. And um, th th they were assistants in the lab. They, they, they liberated them back into the ocean. And they were, put, they were, they were sent to jail. They, they were considered to be guilty of having taken someone's property because the dolphins were seen as objects to be used, not as subjects with their, you know, who should, we should be concerned about for their own subjectivity. You see this in science all the time. Now, it creates moral dilemmas, and it's discussed onwards, but it, it is a side effect of the impersonal attitude, because the impersonal attitude is always to see objects, never subjects. And you know, there is a very strong view in science that subjects don't exist. They're mirages, they're illusions. You know, the idea of a first-person point of view is, 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 a, is an epiphenomenon. It's soul dust, it's nothing. In contrast, uh, spirituality, uh, ever since its inception and all the way through, is heavily based on the personal encounter, even towards animals, you see, the spirituality of pets, the idea that you can encounter an animal as a unique, valuable subject who can enrich your own life and you its. And that's key to the personal encounter, is it's always interpersonal, is that you're interacting with it, it's interacting with you, you see it, it sees you, because it's not in it, you see, you see the other being, the other being sees you, in a reciprocal encounter. You're bound up in it. You can't ever get out of that. You can't ever separate if you are in, a, in an interpersonal encounter because immediately you are affected as much as it's affecting you. So the idea of a sort of one-stop, what linear observation outwards disappears. So it's interactive, it's intersubjective, it's involved, and it is the very basis of caring because to recognise another being as a conscious subject is to recognise its worth as something that you, as someone, that you should care for or that you have a moral responsibility to. The uh, philosopher Deborah Orr says that we all have a moral boundary, an ethical boundary. On one side, we, we see conscious beings worthy of care. That will include our pets and some other animals. Uh, we often give them names. So anyone on, on, on that side of the boundary we tend to see as unique individuals, valuable, subjective. We're going to care for them. We invest in them. We're sad if they disappear. And on the other side of that boundary are objects. Uh, which we don't have an ethical responsibility for. Now, the very same animal type of equivalent sentience, pigs, for example, can fall on either side. Can fall on uh, uh, the personal side or the impersonal side. We have a very ambiguous relationship to animals uh, in that sometimes we treat them uh, with absolute cruelty as uh, objects uh, that we have to use and they have no individual identity and other, and other times uh, as beings with, with, with which we and whom we care about just as much as other human beings. Uh, that, that just simply reflects the fact that as human beings, we are deeply conflicted creatures. 
and that to embrace the personal as much as the personal is, about, is essential to personal development because it's about cultivating love and sharing and kindness and giving and all the things that are, that are stimulated by the, by the recognition, the genuine empathic recognition of another being out there who suffers like you do. And you see this all the way through spirituality. Uh, healing being probably one of the central acts, <laughs> activities of spirituality. The idea that you can hopefully, you know, with, uh, with the right training and with the right care, heal the person in front of you. And here's Rumi saying, I will soothe you and heal you. I will bring you roses. I too have been covered with thorns. This poetic depiction of the interpersonal encounter, this, this, this sense that what's opposite you is worthy of your care. This is, does not make for good science because you can't treat everyone the same when you're caring for people. You can't care for everybody, so you can only care for selective beings in front of you. It's not impartial. It's very partial. But it's equally important to cultivate in your life. If you're only on the left-hand side here, there's a chance that, you know, that your, your moral boundary will collapse completely. Um, another integral feature of modern, of, of modern and postmodern spirituality is the importance of the, imp of the personal connection with nature. This belief that beyond humans and higher mammals, everything in nature, perhaps everyone in nature, every being in nature, is conscious and connect connectable in some, in some personal manner. And uh, you know, the notion of, of, of prayer, of course, is connecting in a personal way to the transcendent or to the all. It's deeply personal experience, the idea of connecting with a thou, Buber called it, you know, connecting with the eternal thou. But he also talked a lot about his cat as well. You know, so he was equally interested in, you know, cats and God. Because <laughs> for him, he had spiritual experiences looking into the eyes of his cat. That was one of his key kind of things of like, this is, this is important, this is something. But yes, uh, tree hugging. It's kind of uh, uh, something that we uh, sort of sniff at as kind of, e you know, eco-warriors. Eco but it is integral to modern spirituality because it's about the recognition that a tree maybe something we sh or someone we should care about as well. And it's not the preserve of a minority of uh, Fruit Loops. I don't, know if you saw, uh, I don't know if you saw Judy Dench's excellent program, the pa uh, My Passion for Trees. You want to see it? Uh, but Judy Dench said you know, that the, her, her relationship with, her, with trees is probably the most important thing in her life and the most spiritual thing in her life, and that she, she talks to her trees. Uh, and that this is her life. <laughs> you know, so, um, and she is a bit. Sorry? Thank you. Absolutely, yeah. So the idea of connecting with anything as, as a being, it, it, it activates your concern and care. Judy Dench cares for her trees an enormous amount because she feels so much for them and feels that they are beings that have an intelligence and sentience to some degree. And this idea is, is, is actually growing in philosophy and science. It's called panpsychism. I'm sure many of you are aware of it. The idea that everything contains a spark of consciousness. And even some of the hardest scientists, you know, people who are, who are, who are in consciousness studies and have come from the kind of, you know, the hard science end, have now reached a panpsychist position. That, 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 that interiority, subjectivity goes all the way down through the tree of life to the very genesis of life and beyond. And that it just simply kind of uh, increases in complexity and, and brightness, but it's always there. 
and, the, and many, many scientists take that viewpoint because they just can't find any point in the evolutionary tree where you can say that one woke up, you know. <laughs> Because you would theoretically have to say if it appeared at some point that one animal woke up and was sentient at some point when previously everything wasn't. So they just say, well, it must go all the way down as a kind of interiority to every exteriority. And as I say, that's not fringe anymore. Some of the biggest philosophers of mind and neuroscientists have taken a panpsychist position. Now it's in the book, but if you want to check out Christoph Koch, K-O-C-H, uh, who is, uh, was trained uh, by Francis Crick, uh, you know, one of the uh, discoverers of DNA, who was an absolute biological reductionist. He said, you know, consciousness is nothing, there's nothing there. Koch has come to the view that uh, he's come to a panpsychist position. So, uh, and uh, and he, he, he writes about it beautifully, spiritually even, in, uh, in the Scientific American, uh, in ways that you just, I wouldn't have believed. Um, you, know, it's, think, you know, things they are are changing. These, 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 there's, there's more interaction than there used to be. Um, I was going to mention a bit about uh, social sciences and how they, they, they manage this, because as a social scientist, you're observing people, uh, beings, subjects, and we recognise that, but somehow we have to detach ourselves from it as well, and there's a, there's a huge amount of debate about how much we should try and connect with people, and basically what you see here is participant observation, which is people getting utterly involved and connected with their subject of study, which is the essence of anthropology now, and non-participant observation, which is where you stand back and observe them from afar and don't try to connect, just remain impartial and you're over there, I'm over here. Uh, and there's ongoing argument about which is preferable. Obviously, both are prolific and important in social sciences now, but it's the same argument. You always find that psychology and the social sciences mucking around in the middle, trying to deal with the fact that they're drawing in both of these cultural strands and trying to bring them into some sort of relationship. Right. Verbal ineffable. I'll try and we'll, we'll whiz through this in 10 minutes, max, to leave time for everything else. Science is strung up in language and mathematics. It, 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 all of science, no matter what particular discipline within science, the, it, it what, and whatever investigation or experiment or observational study you've done ends up as a journal article. And a journal article is a particular form of written language which combines words and mathematics. Five to 10,000 words, it's very dry, it's very unflorid, there's no emotion in it. And that is the, the end product of every scientific study. There's no way of getting around the fact that however <coughs> obtuse your subject of study, it ends up in words and the knowledge is the words. You then put it through peer review, which is very wordy lots of rhetoric, lots of chit-chat, and this kind of veil of language is both science's way of reaching out into the world, but it's also its limiter as well. You can't get past it. Um, Tobias Danzig refers to uh, number as the, uh, and how our language of mathematics that we now use draws on a whole range of mathematical languages, from Hindu to Arabic to uh, uh, Roman and more, and that we've got this kind of mishmash numerical language that has become the language of science. And maths is a language. It has uh, its, its, its symbols that represent aspects of reality just in the way that other aspects of language are. And science has evolved its own special language. Uh, equations evolved about the same time as Newton. And often when you kind of Google physicist, you see a blackboard full of equations because we understand that this is sort of some clever way which we don't as non-scientists fully understand, or non-physicists, 
but it's this brilliant way of verbalizing sort of the, some of the more obtuse aspects of physical reality. There's also some enormous question, uh, assumptions in there which we still don't understand, like why is it that there's this symmetry of quantities? So ph the phenomena on the left of the equation are perfectly symmetrical to the phenomena on the right, so that they equate perfectly in the, in the sum. Why is that? You know, why, why do we have this, this kind of seesaw of balance between phenomena in the, in the cosmos? Of course, famously for Einstein, energy equaling, e equaling maths, excuse me, mass times the speed of light squared. So this, uh, and uh, here's um, Niels Bohr, a great quantum physicist, saying science is suspended in language in such a way that we cannot say what is up and what is down. And what I like about this quote is you kind of get this idea of the scientist in a sort of web of language, strung up, desperately trying to peer into reality as it is, but knowing that he or she can't get past this language of symbol. Um, Ludwig Wittgenstein, one of the great philosophers of language, uh, he spent much of his life trying to show exactly what you can distill down to language in terms of a knowledge system. Uh, but he was equally adamant that you abs he said you absolutely can't encode, encode the whole of reality in language. It, you have this barrier. There's loads on the other side. And he said at the end of his Tractatus, he said, you know, that, that whereof we cannot, cannot speak, this shows itself as, as the mystical, he said. So for him, in fact, for, I, I, I frame this dialectic in the book in, in, using Wittgenstein as a kind of, you know, as, a, as, as someone who was fascinated by spirituality as well as science and rational philosophy. He, he again also thought about becoming a monk, he was a gardener for a while just because he liked contemplating things. And he said, you know, yeah, language can go up to a point and then there is all sorts of things that can't get into language. So what can't get into language? What sits beyond it? Are there ways of trying to access knowing beyond words? Um, and that's what I'll look at now. So spirituality's attempt to get beyond language and see what's on the other side. Uh, the, one of the key ways is through the cultivation of silence. So the idea being that if you can cultivate inner silence as well as outer silence, in other words, if you can turn off the inner, uh, inner speech, so language parading through your consciousness constantly, which is vital, but it's also become pathological. Most, most modern minds, it's just there all the time. And we seem, most, most of us are incapable of turning it off until we learn some form of meditation. Um, for the Dalai Lama and for those who pursue the path of silence, they say that beyond language, if you can turn language off, you experience a different kind of knowing, a, a plenum, a fullness. Not silence as the absence of noise, but noise as the absence of silence. It's something that is rich with the knowing that you can't ever verbally formulate. You can only experience it directly. So all you can do is just point people on and say, have a go. You can never tell people what you find because it doesn't fit in words. Uh, in, uh, silent retreats have proliferated in the modern era and all, all kinds of other ways of trying to uh, move beyond this kind of web of language which we sit in so much. And of course now with smartphones and social media, the web of language is even more constrictive to some degree and retreat is more, ever more important. Very briefly, I wanted to mention um, the apophatic tradition in Christianity because it's not so well known um, and it's very much about the same idea as Buddhists say that you can't in encapsulate important religious or spiritual truths in language. You can, only point, you can only point the way. It kind of died uh, in relative to its, uh, its the sort of mainstream Christianity, which is very verbalized. But if you want to read a good book, beautifully written book, that captures it, uh, read The Solace of Fierce Landscapes by Belden Lane, which discusses ways of knowing beyond language, which he feels 
are, are, are extremely important to enriching human life, including, he says, immersion in, in landscape, encountering nature in its kind of primal oneness before language existed and after language will have gone. You know, this kind of, you know, what it really is. You know? What is it beyond the symbol? Can you ever know? And finally, I'm going to pitch to you now that the endeavour to try and capture the ineffable in some kind of representation that doesn't include words has been a, def uh, a defining feature of our culture for centuries now and has created some of the great works of art and music of, of our time and of previous generations too. And that many people simply don't know that. That, that when, we, when we appreciate great works of art and music, we often don't know that the explicit intention of the composer or artist was to represent the ineffable um, and represent this, the sacredness of that. Um, Turner was, a, a, was a, a, a case in point, not conventionally religious, deeply spiritual, and I've got a quote here saying, the significance of light for Turner uh, was an expression of spirituality in the world. And uh, he was trying to convey the numinous, this idea that there's something beyond boundary and language and that to contemplate one of his paintings, is, many people will say you know, they've, they've had a spiritual experience which, where, where they felt they've received something that they can't say. Um, there's another beautiful Turner painting. Some of his most nebulous paintings were right at the end of his career where he was getting even more spiritual. And apparently his last words were, the sun is God. So there you go. Um, Kandinsky also was looking to try and represent... So the genesis of abstract art in Kandinsky and Mondrian, both of them were uh, deeply mystical and they were around during the mysticism revolution. They were part of theosophy, which was a movement at the time, and they were trying to find ways of representing reality which bashed apart concepts, which broke apart verbalised ways of thinking and seeing. He wrote, Kandinsky wrote himself in an article called Concerning the Spiritual in Art that the purpose of art was an expression of mystery in terms of mystery. Brilliant. Anyway, but so either, certainly to, to draw the mind out of its traditional ways of, sort of, 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 of verbal logic. And the, this is a Severini, who uh, was a futurist, who was equally spiritual. But I could have put up dozens of the great spiritual, excuse me, the great painters of the modern era and... As I d delved into it more researching this book, each time I came across someone who'd renounced conventional religion was searching for new means of exploring spiritual expression. And to finish the talk, just before our, our, um, our discussion, I'm going to play some, ex some extracts from uh, compositions composed by uh, composers who were trying to convey the same thing. And I'm going to give you, read out a little bit. So... <laughs> We're going to start off, we've got four, four clips, each of which is about a minute or two each. So hopefully we, we've got time for them all. So Debussy, Claude Debussy said this. He said, I do not practice religion in accordance with the sacred rites. I've made mysterious nature my religion. I do not believe that a man is any nearer to God for being clad in priestly garments, nor that one place in a town is better for meditating than another. When I gaze at a sunset sky and spend hours contemplating its ever-changing beauty, an extraordinary emotion overwhelms me. Nature in all vastness is truthfully reflected in my sincere soul. Uh, and so his music, he tried to capture that. And, I, and shut your eyes or keep them open, but try and enter into, into this music as what it was intended to convey, which is 
ineffable harmony and beauty. Um, tends to be common of composers who try and achieve some kind of ineffable spiritual music is they tend to avoid lyrics. What was that? Please. Uh, that was... Uh, you've, got, you've got me now. Um, um, thank you so much. It's called Reverie, absolutely. I, I, I did know that. Just, uh, <laughs> it's amazing what you know, 90 minutes of talking does to... To the brain. Uh, this is uh, Vaughan Williams, and this is uh, Fantasia. I'm going to just read a little bit of Vaughan Williams because his music is this kind of background hum to our lives. Green sleeves, and you know all of his incredible compositions. And he, I tell you what he said. He said, "Music. Firstly, he was not interested in religion at all. He said, music is religion reaching out. Music is reaching out to ultimate realities by means of ordered sound." And an, and an autobiography of Vaughan Williams said he was a spiritual vagabond who sort of wandered the world looking for inspiration. Have a, have a little dose of this. John Coltrane, a uh, great jazz musician, uh, subscribed to no creed. He was interested in Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and Christianity. And he said, I think music can make the world better, and I want to do it. I'd like to point out the, to people the divine in a musical language that transcends sounds. I want to speak to their souls.
And then a little personal thing for me at the end. It, so much of modern electronic music, from dance to ambient, is absolutely suffused with people who are trying to do something spiritual. I mean, in the names of the songs and in the names of the albums, you see it absolutely pervading through. One of my favourites is Ulrich Schnauss. In an interview, he said, I believe something that I can't scientifically prove, that any kind of creativity is a connection to some kind of alternate reality, a way of getting a glimpse to what humans theoretically could be capable of. I think that's why it's so important to keep that alive. It's one of the few things that can provide hope. And we're going to finish off by a little extract of one of his pieces of music. So uh, to leave enough time for questions, I'm going to finish there <laughs> with Ulrich Schnauss's sounds uh, running through your mind. Um, thank you all so much for listening. I'm going to turn the, the lights up now and we'll have questions. Hey guys, Niall here again. Just one more quick thing before you go. If you're interested in getting early access to our latest psychology lectures, and discounts on our live events, don't forget to go to theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast and enter your email to sign up. That's theweekenduniversity.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed the show.